I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no need for a spaceship. This is Encounter 705, the Psychometric Express. We've seen over the past year or so that actual literal flying saucers, or whatever they are, are not a strictly necessary ingredient for stories of extraterrestrial or alien contact. Actually, alien is probably a better, more inclusive term than extraterrestrial, but alien also has certain connotations of being extraterrestrial, so let me start over. Actual flying saucers are not necessary to have stories about weird stuff from elsewhere. We've seen contactees who channel messages from aliens. We've seen ethereans and other dimensional beings, and other other dimensional beings, rather. We've been to the 19th century a bit as well, looking at airships. So nothing we hear about today should be too surprising or out of the ordinary if we've been paying attention. We're going to be looking at some examples of psychometric explorations of other planets and cultures. Why? because weird 19th century parapsychology is fun, and there are other planets involved, so we're not getting too far off course from the stuff we usually talk about here. We're going to be looking at the writings of one particular guy today, William Denton. Now, Denton is an interesting guy, Uh, so let's get started. My biographical information about William Denton is from the fairly hagiographical book, called William Denton, The Geologist and Radical, written by a guy named J.H. Powell and published in 1870, while Denton was still alive. So we, I have not been able to figure out how Denton died, so I'm going to assume he didn't, and he's still out there somehow. He was born in England in 1823, and supposedly joined the temperance movement at age 10. He would be committed to the movement throughout his life, and of his devotion to the temperance movement, Biographer Powell says the following. To fight for temperance in England at that time, especially in the district in which he labored, was hazardous. Denton braved all dangers. In the open air, as the snow was mantling the earth, he fought drink firm as a rock, impervious to rotten eggs and insult. He has been pulled from the stand and maltreated by the agents of publicans when there was not a solitary minister of the gospel who had the courage to offer a word of sympathy and encouragement to the speaker. He started off his working life as a machinist's apprentice, but soon entered the realm of preaching, first as a Methodist and eventually as a Unitarian. And this was in addition to the studies of geology that he was beginning to pick up. In the 1850s, his family facing poverty and himself under attack for his religious radicalism, Denton left England for America and eventually settled in the Midwest, undertaking geological expeditions as far west as the Brazos River. After being fired for his unpopular opinion, from several schools where he was working, he began lecturing just on his own around the Midwest on, and this is a list of topics from his biography, phonetics, anti-slavery, temperance, geology, Bible questions, and spiritualism. After a brief stint trying to live in Kansas, which he abandoned because he couldn't make money on his lectures out in the middle of Kansas, he returned east. 
As the Civil War broke out in 1861, he was in Wisconsin at the time. He found the lecture market in Canada to be more profitable than in the war-torn United States. And his brief biography ends with this sort of glowing valedictory statement. Radical in sentiment, he presses on, hopefully and steadily. He is a man on whose word the world may depend. Let orthodox zealots defame. Their bitter breath cannot hurt Denton. The leading scientists have little or no sympathy with his researches in psychometry and spiritualism. That affects him no more than the breath of bigotry. He has built his philosophy on fact and in no instance ignored the teachings of science. But he has done what the leading scientists had little prompting to do, shown from demonstrated fact that the unseen is more real than the seen and consequently more enduring. This could only be well done by an acquaintance with psychology, psychometry, and spiritualism. He had the patience to investigate and has the courage to maintain the conclusions at which he arrived. This is a truly gushing tribute, and I hope that all of you someday have somebody talk about you like that. It's pretty amazing. It also echoes what any fanboy or fangirl of anybody who comes up with a new idea of the truth behind the UFOs. This is this is rank fanboy slash girlism, and we see it in the the UFO and paranormal community today, whether it's rallying around somebody who claims to have all the information that the government doesn't want you to know about flying saucers, or who claims to have Bigfoot in a cage somewhere and will reveal it for the right amount of money, or somebody who thinks they have photos of a alien mummy from Roswell. That kind of impassioned defense from people who can't afford to be proven wrong yet again uh, is pretty common. Denton was also a poet. In 1856, he published a volume called Poems for Reformers that opened, oddly but honestly, with a poem in which he explains he's not a great poet. It's called, I May Not Be a Poet. I may not be a poet, but my heart beats to the tune. The mockingbirds are warbling in this merry month of June. My soul joins them in chorus as they swell their artless lay. I sit and dream of heaven on this sunny summer day. I may not be a poet, but I often stand and gaze with joy tears in my eyes upon the sun's departing rays. When golden beams are streaming through the cloudlets in the west, and soul gives each a glory kiss before he goes to rest. I may not be a poet, but I love the forest tree. Each wood king is a brother, happy, natural, and free. I worship as a druid, for God dwells within this place. In wandering through the forest, I have seen him face to face. I may not be a poet, but I love night's starry eyes. Their glory like a magnet draws my spirit to the skies. I march along the Milky Way amid the shining throng and list with rapture as I go to their melodious song. I may not be a poet, but the flowers talk to me. The leaflets whisper softly as I sit beneath the tree. To me, the crickets chirp their loves, no secrets from me hid. I lie upon the velvet sward and learn what Katie did. I may not be a poet, but I love the true and right, and welcome freedom's dawning as the eagle greets the light. Roll on, bright orb of liberty, and in thy ardent ray, may every fetter mankind wears melt speedily away. Although this collection is predominantly religious and political in tone, when I first read this poem, the reference to druids struck me, as did the sort of animism of, of God inhabiting every aspect of nature. There's some hints here of the spiritualist ideas that he would discuss more thoroughly in later works. 
And as we've seen, he was also a longtime supporter of the temperance movement, and this found its way into his poetry as well. I have outsourced further poetry reading because I can. The makers and vendors of intoxicating drink. Magician-like, they take our food, transform it into death, and blast the young and gentle with its pestilential breath. As leeches drain the nation of its happiness and wealth, and as a deadly poison pale the blooming cheek of health. They feed the fount of sorrow and increase the source of ill, until a mighty flood rolls down where once was but a rill. They dam the streams of gladness as they leap to bless the earth, and change to yells of madness even the sweetest strains of mirth. They wither like a deadly blast the blooming flowers of joy, and as an icy breath our fair and budding hopes destroy. No hamlet have they left uncursed, no place but knows the woe that follows in their deadly train wherever they may go. You tell me they make money at this horrid trade of theirs, a blessing to themselves and then a blessing to their heirs. A curse goes with the money, and they cannot say it nay. A stain is on their hoarded wealth they cannot wash away. From human blood tis daily coined amid curses, groans, and fears. No dollar but was steeped within a fount of scalding tears. Make money? Yes, no doubt they do, and other things as well. Such things they would keep secret, but the voice of truth must tell. They make the staff of life into sharp arrows for death's bow. They dig an early grave wherein they lay their victims low. What liars, paupers, thieves they make with hosts of godless knaves and turn our noblest men and true to basely crouching slaves. They raving, howling drunkards make more beasts than they are men who put out reason's light till it can ne'er be lit again. Pale weeping widows sad their work, the heritors of grief who dread not death that brings to them a long-sought sweet relief. Lone orphans, too, who never knew a parent's smile or kiss, who never heard the voice of love or knew domestic bliss. They make those jails and clanking chains for victims of their trade. Yon gallows crowning all their work by them was also made. They deepen every curse and every wickedness they swell and turn this lovely earth into a fiendish, fiery hell. I strongly believe and hope, really, that this is the only temperance poem you hear on a Flying Saucer podcast this week. If not, let me know who's infringing on my gimmick of a Flying Saucer podcast without any flying saucers. One more poem, because I I think it's fun. This is a fairly melodramatic piece. The Maiden's Curse. Earth has no rage like love to hatred turned, and hell no fury like a woman scorned. I wake to the truth, my life's vision is past. He's basely deceived me, I know it at last. I trembled, I doubted, I hoped it is o'er. The wretch now derides me, I ask for no more. The best gift of heaven he tramples to scorn and leaves me bereft of all hope and forlorn. I looked on him once as an angel of light. Each smile of his face made me thrill with delight. The tone of his voice as we sat neath the tree was sweet as the music of angels to me. I loved him as woman can only once love. He vowed that he loved me, all others above. I trusted my all on a calm, sunny sea, a wreck he has left me forever to be. I loved him, but love is transformed into hate. I'd as soon see a demon as him at the gate. I'd rather a serpent enfold me than he, base traitor, deceiver, no worse wretch can be. 
I hate him, my curse on his head where he goes. May fiends be his friends and his dearest friends foes. May love never bless him, nor goodness, nor truth. The cold frost of age nipped the bud of his youth. Oh, bitter be poverty's blast that he feels, the specter of want ever tread on his heels. May every sweet sound on his vile ear grate, and love, ere he feels it, be frozen to hate. His visions and slumber be ghosts of the past, and every foul specter a worse than the last. The prince of deceivers, the vilest of men. May woman's sweet smile never bless him again. May o'er him the billows of woe ever roll, and lightnings of wrath scathe his villainous soul. Okay, enough poetry. So, William Denton. What's his deal? Why are we talking about him? Denton, as we've seen, was a leading proponent of something called psychometry. And I haven't defined it yet because, well, I haven't. But you're probably familiar with the idea, even if you're not familiar with the very 19th century parapsychological-sounding term psychometry. You ever see a TV show where a psychic picks up a knife and suddenly knows who the murderer is through psychic insight, through connection with the physical object? That's psychometry. And it occurs to me that there might never have been a TV show that showed that sort of thing, but I kind of assumed there was. Wasn't there a show called Medium or something? And she was like a psychic crime person. I assume there was psychometry in that. I never watched it. Anyway, a more formal definition of psychometry from the New World Encyclopedia reads as follows, quote, In the field of parapsychology, psychometry, or soul measuring, is defined as a form of extrasensory perception whereby a psychic is able to obtain information about an object or its owner by touching the object or t holding it to his forehead, end quote. Because no formal definition of a parapsychological or paranormal concept is complete without some kind of intellectual consumer protection warning, Wikipedia, which pretty much plagiarizes the New World Encyclopedia definition, provides this caveat, quote, There is no scientific evidence that psychometry exists and the concept has been widely criticized, end quote. Since this entire podcast is based on stories about things for which no scientific evidence exists and have been widely criticized, I'm not too worried. But, you know, proceed at your own risk because, you know, psychometry might be fake. So where does psychometry come from? In 1842, a guy who Denton described as an influence, James Rhodes Buchanan, in his book, Manual of Psychometry, The Dawn of a New Civilization, laid out this definition or explanation. The past is entombed in the present. The world is its own enduring monument. And that which is true of its physical is likewise true of its mental career. The discoveries of psychometry will enable us to explore the history of man as those of geology enable us to explore the history of the earth. There are mental fossils for psychologists as well as mineral fossils for the geologists, and I believe that hereafter the psychologist and the geologist will go hand in hand, the one portraying the earth, its animals, and its vegetation, while the other portrays the human beings who have roamed over its surface in the shadows, and the darkness of primeval barbarianism. I, the mental telescope, is now discovered, which may pierce the depths of the past and bring us in full view of the grand and tragic passages of ancient history. 
So the idea that past events, feelings, and thoughts could be imprinted on physical objects has similarities to those sort of animistic ideas of, of divine essences inhabiting every possible thing we see around us. And some parapsychologists have connected these basic ideas of psychometry to um, as, as being sort of parallel to auras surrounding people. Objects, they propose, can have an aura as well, an aura that can be read by those with the right talents or learned skills. In 1863, Denton and his wife Elizabeth published a massive three-volume work on the topic and their experiments. In this massive, I keep saying massive, but massive, massive multi-volume work, The Soul of Things, um, he not only explores the Earth's past, but also places beyond the earth. In the preface to the book, Denton acknowledges the potential strangeness of both his experiments and the conclusions that he draws from them. There is a wide realm lying between the known physical and the comparatively unknown spiritual, a realm as yet almost entirely unexplored. Mesmeric experimenters have been pioneers in exploring one portion of it, Reichenbach and Buchanan and other portions, while in this volume, we record our experience in traveling over a part of this little-known but exceedingly interesting and important region. Facts are constantly presenting themselves that no philosophy explains. And as the most obvious phenomena are the first to be brought within the domain of science, because their explanation lies nearer the surface, so what remain necessarily lies deeper are the results of the operation of subtler forces, and their existence is more likely in consequence to be denied by those whose belief is bounded by what their senses supply or can be inferred therefrom. But he who knows most of nature, he who is most reverently her lover, will be least likely to set up his knowledge as a boundary beyond which fact and philosophy may never advance. The higher we rise, the wider the circle of the unknown stretches around us, while destiny with uplifted finger beckons us on. Most of the book is taken up with discussions of the nature of psychometry, including the revelation that women are more, quote, susceptible to psychometric influence, end quote, than men. Visions of the Earth's deep past and the connections Denton sees between psychometry and other parapsychological phenomena. All of this makes up the bulk of the book. But, yeah, we're here for the outer space stuff. So let's look at volume three. Yes, three of three volumes of The Soul of Things. In this volume, we see Denton's crew of psychometrists, including young son Sherman, wife, and his sister Anne Denton Cridge, traveling to Venus, Mars, an asteroid, Jupiter, and the sun. Yes, the sun. Here is Sherman's description of what he sees on Venus. I see a tree larger than those round here, just like a toadstool. It's a kind of purple color. It has a monstrous trunk larger than any I ever saw before. I see many of them. They are as thick as the woods down here. There are not as many on the mountains as on the plains. Inside of the trees is jelly-like stuff as sweet as honey. I tasted it. There is something hard inside that I spit out. I see a kind of animal, half fish, half muskrat. The tail part looks like a fish, the rest looks like a muskrat. It's in a brook or stream. Under that stream is a kind of rock from which something rises like gas that is very poisonous. It is a great deal warmer there than here. It seems almost as if it would burn me. It is so hot. The sun looks larger, very nearly twice as large. I could find no explanation of how Sherman 
would be able to taste something with traveling there psychically. That struck me as odd. Sherman's most expansive journey, journeys, where he spends his most time, are to Mars. Now, as this section begins, Denton explains that a lot of people have had visions of the various planets and have issued descriptions of the planets and their inhabitants before he and Sherman get around to it. So what's true and what's not? Denton takes a little time to explain his process and investigation. Many persons, clairvoyants and others, have given descriptions of inhabitants on Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and even on the sun and moon. Depictions differing very widely from each other, as some of them differ very widely from known astronomical facts. Some persons have professed to see the inhabitants and described what appeared in their vision, while others have informed us of what they said departed spirits had revealed to them. How are we to know which account out of the number is the true one, or whether any is true? The only way, it seemed to me, by which we could arrive at the truth would be to obtain independent examinations of a planet by various parties, no one of which should know anything previous to the examination of what the other had stated. Three independent examinations have thus been made, which I present. Not a hint was given as to what might be expected or of what had already been received from others, and the reader can judge from the evidence presented whether there is any reason for believing that we have obtained any reliable knowledge of our sister planet. Now, I, I didn't count the words, but I think the Mars explorations are the most sort of lengthy in the book. Here is what Sherman has to say about the people of Mars. I have come to a place where the people are crowding into a little house that looks like a summer house, where a man is standing with a basket of flowers. It's a statue made of something like plaster of Paris. They have on strange-looking square caps. The men and women wear the same kind, only the men's are larger. Now I see a great temple. They are going in rows and divide near the statue as they go into the temple. It is very large and high. I see them going up winding stairs, up and up. Some are giving out, it is so hard, and sit on the stairs by the way. They go up a flight, and then there is a place to walk, and another flight. It is so high that the men at the bottom look no larger than my finger. I can look over the houses to a beautiful lake, another city, and another temple that I can barely see. I do not see that they are doing anything but looking off. Now I see a place where people go in, and there are several statues. One man has his head bent over as if praying. The people look at the statues and some point to that man and talk, but I cannot understand them. The people are darker colored than ours and have four fingers instead of five three fingers and a thumb. Their toes are the same. All that I see are barefooted. No, no, some have a little thing under their foot that seems to be made of metal to keep stones from hurting them. The faces are not as pleasant as ours. Those statues have four fingers too. The people have 16 teeth in the upper jaw and 16 in the lower. They have large, wide mouths cut back farther than ours. The hair is yellow. I tried a number and they had blue eyes. I see no beards, just a few bristles on the chin. All the people are out of their houses at the temple. The streets are paved with stone, and the houses are nearly flat. Some are flat. I see windows, but no glass in them. I can hardly see through them. They look like mica. The houses are rather dark inside. They do not fear robbers, or they would not leave their houses this way. I see a pile of hats in one place. I see something that they eat. It's white and something like bread, but it's not. I see shelves in a place like a kitchen. They have clothes that half cover them. They dress like Indians. Their legs are bare, all of them that I see. 
I forgot to tell you that their eyes are like cat's eyes. The pupils are long. They look queer. They have what I suppose are chairs. They have four legs but no backs, and the legs are slant. The houses have no doors like ours that I see. They're open, just an entrance to go in and out. The streets are wide, three times as wide as ours. The top of that temple came up something like a French roof. It seems warm, like summer weather. Sherman also sees their flying machines. Here, Denton prefaces these explorations with a summary of the precautions he took to ensure that Sherman's psychometric examinations were valid. On March 25, 1869, that is, more than two years afterward, Sherman examined Mars again. As before, he did not know the name of the planet, nor do I think that he knew, before he examined it, that he had examined it previously. An independent examination of this kind would be, I thought, a test to some extent of the accuracy of the previous examination. It seems as if I was in a city. I see drawings like colored photographs. They must be colored by the light itself. The people are very curious. I see that some have hooks on their feet with springs, so they go over the ground fast. They have them on their hands, too. There is no house made of brick or wood. They seem to be made of a kind of stone, like rough sandstone. Their roofs are steep. The stones are flattened off and look well. The roofs are covered with points and look thatchy. They have some kind of stuff like glass, but so clear that you can hardly tell anything is there. Their shoes seem to be elastic at the side and metal at the bottom. The women dress the same as the men. Some wear a kind of white cloth. Well, they've got a new thing here. It's something like a velocipede, but it's a flying machine that goes along about three or four feet from the ground. Some of the best riders make it go as high as a house. I see one place devoted to that kind of amusement. There is a high railing around it, and people are looking at them. The way they steer is most curious. It's by making the wheel on one side go faster than the other. Some go backward. The best riders. How they enjoy it. It makes a great noise. They move both hands and feet. They have some strong and hard stuff, something like bone, but much lighter than wood. I see no one smoking anywhere. Ladies ride on those machines. They are not as hard to drive as a velocipede. It is the most curious to see them go backward. There is a square block at the bottom that seems heavy and has spikes on it to make it stick. It's drawn up as soon as the machine goes. Two persons ride near together 40 feet up and talk to each other. They believe in wearing a long mustache. None of them shave, I think. Some of them dare to fly over water with that machine a mile from the land. They go faster than birds. There are a great many of them in this green, grassy place. People give something that is white and round like a medal to two men who have 40 or 50 of these machines. On each side of the medal is a picture of one of these flying machines. This seems to be the place for all kinds of exercise. I see men with those springs on their hands and feet. They spring and jump great distances with them. The flying machine is about 10 feet long. The person pushes a large wheel and the cogs on that make a small one go, and then a belt from that makes fans go so fast. I don't notice any difference between them and the people here, only they have large foreheads and their heads are large and their hair does not grow down as low on the forehead as it does with us. Denton's explanation of his sort of investigation protocol sounds a little bit like what I've seen in descriptions of remote viewing sessions. Sherman, in his second exploration of Mars, describes things as in really a fairly similar way. There's some differences, um, but one of the things I like and one of the things that makes me a bit suspicious that this is either a complete hoax or, you know, completely true, is that in, in the first vision, he did not see any glass in the windows. And in the second, he said there's glass, but it's so clear that it looks like it isn't even there. Denton's other 
psychonauts, psychometrists, whatever you want to call them, also looked at Mars and unsurprisingly witnessed many of the same things that Sherman did. To keep things concise, we're going to move along to Denton's sister, Mrs. Cridge, and Mrs. Cridge's visions of Jupiter. Here, she explores the modes of traveling they had on the planet. No velocipedes or springs on the hands and feet here, but it's pretty interesting. These people travel and have tracks laid down. Their motive power is electricity, which is generated by a very small apparatus. They travel noiselessly in connection with their traveling arrangements. There's great feeling of safety. In addition to those vehicles above mentioned, running on prepared tracks, they have smaller ones, propelled by the same power and needing no tracks, and capable of going wherever a horse could go with such a vehicle. Shockingly, the people of Jupiter have something recognizable as a railroad. What about the inhabitants? Mrs. Cridge describes the majority of the inhabitants this way. All the inhabitants yet seen by me have light hair and blue eyes. Blondes certainly predominate and may be universal. I touch them and realize that they are flesh and blood like ourselves, but lighter, and like their planet, more largely constituted of refined and imponderable elements. I think it's interesting how he, or Denton, as he sort of transcribed and and recorded her visions, makes an effort to make the Jovians sort of, to make their physical makeup match the, the light nature, gaseous nature of the planetary environment. But there were other inhabitants of Jupiter as well. The inhabitants are dark, hairy, of small stature, and impress me as being the last of an inferior race to which the planet in its present highly advanced condition is not adapted, and which numbers very few. These few are doomed to die out, as there are not in Jupiter, as there are here, the elements for the growth of such a race. They seem but a remnant of the past. I am not attracted to them. There are clearly some overtones of 19th century evolutionary thought here, unsurprising, since Denton was a dedicated supporter of Darwin. The description of of dark people being a throwback and doomed to extinction while the blonde people being the, you know, fit for survival branch of the species is probably one of the most stereotypically 19th century ideas in this book. And, And it's really no surprise to see it here. Now, this is a bit, you know, out of order, but Mrs. Cridge also encountered similar beings on Mars. I see a race of men who are almost black, their bodies nearly covered with dark hair. They are very small in stature, and their heads are small, even in proportion to their small bodies. They do not live in houses. They are the most inferior race of human beings I have yet seen. Now, interestingly, Mrs. Cridge describes these people as inhabiting, quote, a large tongue of land jutting out in the sea, something like southern Africa, but smaller, end quote. So we have a dark people inhabiting a place that looks like Africa, We have these as the most inferior humans she's seen. Again, this isn't surprising and illustrates the degree to which racial hierarchy ideas or ideas of a a, a sort of clearly delineated racial hierarchy penetrated all areas of science, even parasciences like psychometry. If you read the book for yourself and, and, you know, you can, there's a lot more like this. But the descriptions, I, I read a lot of these things. And the descriptions all seem sort of samey as we go on. So 
there's some, you know, there's some excerpts that sort of give you an idea of, of the type of things they saw. The book was not beyond criticism. There was a review in the Sydney Quarterly magazine um, by the magnificently named Eben Atherston Jones, um, partly in response to the book and partly in response to uh, Denton undertaking a lecture tour there in Australia. And the review points out the biggest issue with Denton's approach and offers an alternative. We shall just, however, mention one palpable ground of complaint. If we had had the testing of some of these psychometers, we should have commenced with verifiable experiments. We should not have set them to gaze helplessly into the sky and then have asked them to shut their eyes and describe the interior of the planets or stars. We should have induced half a dozen of our friends, unknown to and out of sight of the psychometer, to look into a mirror. After they had retired from the room, we should have had the psychometer brought in and asked him to look at the mirror with his eyes opened or shut, as he liked best, and describe the persons who had just looked into it. Or we should have gone to some well-known scene in town or country and have taken away a piece of stone or rock and asked the psychometer to describe the place whence it came, not how it looked a thousand years ago, but how it appears now, when the correctness of the description can be tested. Unfortunately, Mr. Denton gives us no record of any such experiments, and we have no certainty that these visions are more reliable than the celebrated trance lectures delivered in Sydney some years ago. The reviewer seems to have a more solid grasp on the scientific method than Denton does, and I think, I think that's a, a, good, a good plan, right? Let's try out the actual technique of psychometry on something that can actually be tested and verifiably proven you know, to be true or not. We could go on, of course, but these books are huge and there are links to them in the show notes so you can explore the solar system yourself along with Sherman and Mrs. Cridge. Now, I realize this was a diversion from our usual type of topic. Not really, but this group of episodes is deliberately saucer light. But still, I think you can see the parallels between what Denton's psychonauts experience and describe and what we would see from contactees in the 20th century. One of the similarities, I think, is the extrapolation of alien technology from the technology with which the witnesses were familiar, the flying machines being like velocipedes, for example. Also, with the overtones of racial hierarchy, we see a contactee parallel as present-day concerns are being imposed on alien landscapes and societies. Most of all, at least as far as the most highly developed Martians are concerned, is the claim that they are more spiritually and morally advanced than humans. Denton reports, quote, Indeed, they seem to have controlled selfishness and all the baser passions until they are the mere servants of the higher and nobler powers of the soul, end quote. There are no trials, and disputes are unknown. Quote, Their controversies, if they have them, serve only for the discovery of truth and never for triumph of person or party, end quote. Adamski's Venusians, or the officers of the Ashtar Command, would have been right at home on Denton's Mars. But let's not forget that Denton's studies were much, much more in line with the parapsychology of the day than the ufology of ours. I think the parallels we see with contactees are due more to contacteeism's relationship to old school spiritualism and parapsychology than its similarities to the space-age world of UFOs that would develop in the later 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Nevertheless, I encourage you to take a look at Volume 3 of The Soul of Things. It's an interesting bit of family history in the overall genealogy of the saucer life. 
Next time, we are back on the Mothman beat as we look at John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies. The Saucer Life, Encounter 705, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and featured the voices of Sasha Gimlinson and Roberta Evangeline Straith. It is a Chizo Media production. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life everywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.